We've been walking through a series, you see there on the screen, a collection of sort sermons on worship to stick in your shoe. And that's why the rocks are here on the table. And we've been using that just as a way to remind ourselves that there are, there are specific points about the topic of worship that if we, don't, if we don't put them in our hearts and deal with them beyond Sunday morning, then, then we will fail to be acceptable worshipers. And maybe some of them have challenged you more than others. Uh, a little curious this morning, and it's always dangerous to do something like this, but we're, we're a small congregation, and uh, we are a family church, and so uh, we can do things like this, but uh, there may be just utter silence here for the next 20 or 30 seconds, but that's all right. doesn't make for a good show, but, uh, but that's okay as well. I'm curious of what you remember of these nuggets on worship that I've given you over the last several weeks. And so this is, uh, this is your opportunity to uh, be first and give me what last week's rock to stick in your shoe or in your heart about worship was, and then you know, you'll be safe and somebody else will have to remember the ones further back. Right? But really, they could be any point from this worship series that you remember. I'm curious, what do you, what do you remember? What has is, what is stuck with you over the series? God's not indifferent as to who we worship, whether we worship at all or not, and how we worship. Yeah, that's good. Preparing for Sunday morning? Yeah. It's our eternal occupation. Worship is our eternal occupation. If your kids, if some of these older kids were to ask you, Mom, Dad, what are we going to do in heaven? Do you know what your answer would be? <laughs> it's kind of, I mean, it seems like a simple question, but is it, I mean, it might be a tough question. But the one one solid answer you can give is that we will most assuredly worship. That's, that's one thing we know for sure. We will be engaged in worship. If you read in Revelation, you'll find that worship is going on day and night. Day and night. What else? What else do you remember from this series? Worship engages the mind. If we are to be worshipers in spirit and in truth... We've majored up to this point on the truth part, and rightfully so, because it's lacking in our day. That we think we can worship in spirit and sincerely and dramatically, but if we're not engaged in worship in truth, then we're, we're off base. Worship, therefore, must engage the mind. We've got to be thinkers if we're going to be worshipers. Worship, one uh, pastor said, is not just a glandular thing that just happens. It doesn't just spontaneously happen in the sense that when we just show up and the lights are right and the songs are right, then worship just happens. No, we have to engage our mind in worship. We've got to, we've got to know what the truth is about God if we're going to worship the one true God. And we've got to know what the truth is about us if we're to put ourselves in proper, in proper place, which is at the feet of that God. So worship most assuredly engages the mind. What else do you remember? God is seeking worshipers. Remember we made the point that God is not just seeking worship. We're using John 4, the great passage in the New Testament, the very words of Jesus himself, on worship. When he says that the Father is seeking someone. And anytime you find the Father in Scripture seeking someone, you might want to, might want to know who it is he's seeking, specifically seeking worshipers. Aren't, aren't you glad that, that the Father in heaven is not just seeking worship? He's not some megalomaniac that just wants us as robots, to, to bow down. No, He's seeking you. He's seeking you. It's more than just the glory. He doesn't need the glory. He has the glory. It's, for his, it's his forever and ever. What He needs is, is your confession of His glory and the relationship that comes with that. 
God's not seeking just worship. He's seeking worshipers. Somebody back here? Was there another? Casual does not equal authentic. We're a casual church. I said last week that, that you come when it's 5 or 10 degrees warmer and you'll find me in flip-flops. This is a casual church. But one thing we might have thrown out when we've gotten away from ritual and traditions and some of the more high church atmospheres maybe you've been in is the awe, right? Just because we've gone casual does not mean that we can lose the reverence and the awe. We talked last week, as we're going to worship in truth and we're going to engage the mind, that means preparation. We don't just come in and it's not just a glandular effect that just happens. We've got to prepare. And we can't just walk in here flippantly and expect worship just to happen. It's not going to work that way, is it? We prepare. We prepare. Did you prepare this week? Or did you expect worship just to happen on this, on this one hour of the week? Did your Monday contribute to the worship that you engaged in this morning? Were you an individual worshiper before you came into this place to be a corporate worshiper? Was your worship on Wednesday or Thursday acceptable worship before God? What kind of worship and what kind of worshiper are you the rest of this week that will contribute to making our worship, our corporate worship, something that the Father in heaven is called to. My prayer this morning during worship and prayer was that the Father would, uh, would hear what is going on here, not just on your lips, but, but from our hearts. And that it would cause him to take notice. You ever think about that? There's a whole lot of worship going on, supposed worship going on this morning this hour of the day, of the week. Sometimes I pray, Lord, from this little church in this little town in the northeast corner of giant Atlanta, would you hear, would you hear from this congregation? Would we so beckon your attention, not because of what we're singing or how well we're singing, but that our hearts are authentic in our worship, that it would cause the, the creator of all the universe to slide to the edge of his throne and look over and say, what is that I hear from the hearts of those people at Cornerstone Church? John 4 is the story we've rooted our series of worship in. And I want to go back to the beginning of the story in John chapter 4. Don't even worry about grabbing your Bible. I asked the guys not to put it on the screen this morning because I just want you to listen and engage in your mind Imagine the story of Jesus meeting this woman at the well, this Samaritan woman. This is, this is the bottom of the bottom in this culture. Not only is she a woman and not respected because of that, she's a Samaritan woman in the presence of a Jewish man, and there is to be little to no recognition from this Jewish man. But there will be. And this is not an accidental meeting. This is a divine encounter, not just for her, but for us. For us who now through the ages get to look back and see what God has to say through the Son to one who seemingly is the furthest you can get away from anything holy. You ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like you 
in your sin, in your life, maybe your past, maybe what you've brought in here with you, you're the furthest you can get away from a holy God. This example is, is, is the example of the one who can't get any further away. And yet Jesus himself meets her. And he, he goes out of his way. He takes a route that he doesn't have to take. He takes a route that might have been despised by some. And he places himself in this divine appointment. And the story that we've been looking at so that we can glean out nuggets of worship starts with a story of evangelism. So just listen. If you want to stare at the floor or close your eyes, you can do that. John 4 says this, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, Jesus left Judea and went away again to Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. It's an interesting word there. It could be translated must. Jesus must pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sinkar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. Can you see him? It was about the sixth hour. That would be noon. It's not a time when most come to the well. Most would have already come or would be coming later. And so this wouldn't be a highly trafficked area. It's a divine time. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And this is what Jesus said to her. Give me a drink. Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So it was just Jesus and this woman. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? And the author gives us a footnote. For Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. Jesus answered and he said this to her. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. This was her reply. Sir, you have nothing to draw and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? And some believe that she was, she was confused. Other scholars believe that she was mocking him. You don't even have anything to get water. What are you talking about? And you're not supposed to be talking to me at all and now you're telling me you've got water, living water? And you don't even have a bucket, mister. She goes on. Are you greater than our father Jacob? It's his well. Are you greater than the one who gave us the well and drank of it himself? Is this water not good enough for you that you have other water you're going you're to tell me about? And his sons and his cattle? It was good enough for Jacob. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him, in him, a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said this, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw water again. Jesus says something interesting now. It's not off the subject. But knowing her heart, 
it goes straight to straight to where the conversation needs to land. Her sin. Go and call your husband and come here. I have no husband. Jesus said, you're right. You have five husbands. And the one whom you are now with is not your husband. So you've you've spoken correctly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. (laughs) Good perception. Why the backstory? Why the backstory behind the nuggets of our worship principles? Um, In this great teaching, probably the greatest of all New Testament teachings from the from the lips of Jesus himself, that will come now in the next verses about worship, that the Father is seeking worshipers in spirit and in truth. The Father is spirit. We must worship him in spirit and in truth. Not on this mountain, not on, not on the Jewish place of worship, not on that mountain, not in the way you think. No, no debates matter, but in spirit and in truth, that's what God is seeking. In, in, this great, in this great situation where Jesus brings these nuggets of truth on worship, you have to understand that, it, that it's always been a conversation about salvation. It's always been a conversation about salvation. The story is, uh, is full of contrasts. We could spend all day talking about all the different little aspects of this story that are just maybe even ironic. Let me give you a few. It seems that that Jesus is under some sort of constraint to be in this place. And yet he talks like he he can be anywhere and do anything he so desires. It seems that he he's weary, and yet he's gonna he's gonna tell this lady that he has strength from some place she's never never known, that he can give her rest from heavy burdens and from her weariness. He's gonna ask for a drink, and yet he's gonna offer waters flowing that never end. The disciples have gone to get food because apparently he is hungry, and yet he has meat of which no one knows and finds sustenance in the act of doing the will of his Father, he would say later to the disciples. He's surrounded here by signs of a time of sowing. It's January. And so seeds are going in the ground, and yet he's going to proclaim that he is amid the joys of harvest, the harvesting of souls, however. So many contrasts in this story. This story is just pregnant with meaning. The chief irony, the chief contrast of this story is that he's sitting at Jacob's well, one of the forefathers of the nation. It's a place that's known in history, and it's esteemed as Jacob's well. It's marked as his. And yet you have the creator of all the universe who's an apparent stranger at the well to this woman. And he's greater than any who's ever walked. And he's going to compare himself, in his own words, to living water. He leans over and he looks down the hole. This deep Jacob's well. 
to the stagnant water at the bottom. And here he is. I imagine with a, with a slight grin on his face, ready to tell this woman in this divine appointment that I'm, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I, I, have, I have living water to give you. He's the greatest of all the ironies in the story. He's going to say that the living water that she needs, the real, the real water that she needs, should be a fountain and not a well. Think of the difference. A fountain and not a well. A fountain flows. It's not just a stagnant pool. A fountain replenishes itself. This living water, he's also going to indicate, should be not just a fountain, but it should be a fountain that is within. This woman has come from where she lives, like every other person would have to. And she's gone to get her supply. She's gone outside of herself to find her satisfaction, her sustenance. This is where she goes to get water. She has to go every day. She has to go multiple times in the day. And yet Jesus is going to say, I've got water that you don't have to go out and get. I've got a water that I'll give you that will spring from within. That's, that's good news. But how many of us, like her in the illustration, could say we're, we're just like that? That we go outside of ourselves because we're empty. We don't have the spring within. And we've got to find some well out there of satisfaction, of joy, of fulfillment. Something out there, man-made, that we've dug ourselves to try and find this pool of stagnant water so that we can just keep from being thirsty. And thirsty in whatever way your flesh and your, your heart desires to be fulfilled. But you've got to keep going back, don't you? You're never quite satisfied, are you? It's never permanent, is it? Jesus is going to tell her that he's got living water. It's a fountain of water. And it's a fountain that comes from within. Not only that, it's an eternal fountain. Jacob's well would run dry, wouldn't it? Like any well. You dig down to the water table, and at some point, it's going gonna, it's gonna to dry up. At some point, when the water runs out at that level, you've got you've to dig deeper, and you've got to dig deeper. And you've got you to dig another well, and you've got to find another place to find your satisfaction. How many places have you tried for satisfaction? for rest, for sustenance in this life. This well will run out. The living water, the fountain within, Jesus is going to tell her will be eternal. Not only that, it will be all satisfying. Whoever drinks of this water shall thirst again. But that's not going to be true. This, this spring that comes when you drink of this living water, will be in you. You're not going to have to go out and find it somewhere else. I'll cause it to spring up within you. And it'll satisfy you forever. Eternally, you will be satisfied. All good news, right? 
So why the, why the back story? Here, here's, the, here's the nugget to put in your heart about worship. Acceptable worship is born out of true conversion. Only. Only. You know, Jesus would say, I've come that you might have life, an abundant life. And he would say that, now think about this, to living, breathing, walking, talking men and women. Does that make any sense? It only makes sense if you understand that Jesus is saying that I come that you might have spiritual life. The Bible says that we are all, on our own accord, spiritually dead. So how does that work with our, with our story of worship? True worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Where there is no spirit, there is no worship. Some in this room have never worshipped acceptably before the Lord because you have never worshipped in both spirit and in truth. Maybe you've worshipped in a sense, in truth, in that you thought you've worshipped the one true God. But where there is no spirit, there's actually a lack of real truth. Some in this room have never actually worshipped because the Bible would say you are dead. But you say, I walked in here on my own accord. The Bible would declare that we we're spiritually dead. Lest we've been born again, our spirits, by our own sin, died. Back with Adam and Eve in the garden. If you eat of it, you shall surely die. Did they die right then? No. Physically? No. Spiritually? Yes. In every birth that came after was a stillbirth spiritually. If there is no spirit alive in you, your worship is not acceptable because the Father is spirit and those who worship Him, Jesus said, must worship Him in spirit and in truth. A Christian mind, Christian thinking without a Christian heart is useless. So do you know truth is about God? Do you know truths about His Word? Do you know truths that you attempt to worship with? Do you know about His glory? In the sense that you've read about it, you've heard about it, but maybe your heart has not experienced it. Maybe you've sung about it. Maybe you've attempted to worship. But the truth is that worship must be in spirit and in truth. And unless God has sprung up through His living water a spirit that has been born again inside of you. Worship cannot, cannot come. Worship, worship is, that, is that fountain that comes from the living water. We must be made spiritually alive. You drink the water of life and then the spring of worship will rise up from us. You know what my concern is and the reason, really the impetus of this message in our worship series? It's this. 
that some of you probably have come into this place, whether today is your first time or maybe many times, you've come in and you've felt like you're an outsider looking in in some way. Not that people have not been hospitable, not that people haven't spoken to you, not that this place has seemed stuffy, or not that this place has seemed like a, a family reunion that, that you weren't invited to. Not for any of those reasons, but, but in some way that maybe you, you haven't been able to define or put your finger on, you felt, you felt like the odd man out. Like whatever's been going on when, when the rest of the congregants are singing, you've, you've had this sense that you may be singing along, but you're not singing with. And in some way, although you've been in the room, you felt like you've been on the outside of the window looking in and like you've been in this experience, but you're not actually experiencing it. And you're talking to this God maybe through song or through prayer, but you don't actually have that relationship with him. Listen, all this talk on worship is for naught if the spirit is not alive in you. The Father in heaven is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. All the preparation that we talked about last week that you do throughout the week is for naught if you've not been born again. A guy named John Lennon, you ever heard of him? Some of you Beatles fans out there, don't start screaming, older people. He wrote a song in his life. The lyrics, you'll remember, went like this. Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know I need someone. Help. When I was younger, so much younger than today, I never needed anybody's help in any way. Remember that time in life? But now these days are gone, and I'm not so self-assured. Now I find I've changed my mind and opened the doors. In an interview later in his life, before, near before his death, he was asked about this song, and he says, you know, the truth is I was actually crying out for help, and nobody came to me with an answer. And some of you today, maybe not in those words, but your heart has been crying out, help, help. I've been going to these wells, and I can't find, I can't find anything to quench this thirst and this hunger that I have within me. And you're telling me there's one who sits on the edge of the well. And he cannot just point me to a well. He can point me to a spring that will never run dry, that will spring up from within so that I don't have to go anywhere. That he will, he will give me a genesis, a regeneration in my own spirit so that I'm spiritually alive and that I can worship my Creator in spirit and in truth. And that joy will never end? You're telling me that, that there is one who has those answers? Yeah. His name is Jesus, and he, he, would, he would later give his life to close the gap between sin, death, righteousness, and the throne of his Father. What's interesting about Wells is uh, in medieval times, if you were going to win a war, one of the ways that you could defeat your enemy would be that as they hunkered down in their castle, if you could not get in, you would cut off the supply, their food supply, and especially if you could, you would cut off their water supply. If they had some sort of 
viaduct running, you would, you would bust it up. If they had some sort of river running into their compound, you would cut it off. And guess what? Eventually they would, they would run dry. The ones who would win the battles, the ones who could lock all the doors and really be sustained were the castles like that of Edinburgh who would have not just a well within their castle walls but would have their own natural spring. That's the right place to build your foundation on the spring that never runs dry. Hey, there, there, there are some of us who who have been building our lives around wells that we're, we're tired of seeing them run dry. And Jesus says, I have water that you know not of. He says something interesting to this woman. He says, I have a gift. A gift. If you knew the gift of God, Speaking of himself, by the way. If you knew the gift, you would ask. You would ask, and I would give it to you. Maybe this morning, for the first time, in your heart you're saying, you know what, I have felt like I've maybe even been doing some of these things. I've been going through some of the, some of the uh, rituals. I've been going through some of the motions, and, and I've been trying to adhere to the truth about this God, but, but the... The fact is that there is no spirit alive in me. I'm, I'm a dead man walking. And I need God to, to spring life up in me so that true worship can be the overflow of my life. Worship must be the product of true conversion. All other worship is for naught. All other worship is for naught. There's a story I've told you before, maybe some of you remember, of a rich um, industrialist, railroad tycoon in the north. His wife passed away giving birth to his only son. His son was the love of his life. He did everything for his son. At an early age, his son contracted a disease, suffered, and passed away himself. The father, while the son was still alive, had a portrait rendered of his son. And it was his prized possession after his son had passed away. It wasn't a large portrait. But he kept it, he kept it in his own room until the old man himself died of old age and really a broken heart. And in his will, he made it known that he would have an auction for his estate. And all of his wealth, all that he had worked for, all that he had, he had no one to leave it to. And so he had a, a public auction. And all that knew of this man's riches gathered in his home for this auction at his death. And the auctioneer came to the table and he said, Now the auction has begun and the first item up for bidding at the request of the man would be the painting that he had made of his son. Put the painting on display and the auctioneer opened the bidding. And there was silence. 
And people had come for all the riches. People had come for, for, for all the other stuff. Nobody wanted, nobody wanted the portrait of this man's dead son. Except for one who sat in the back of very little means. Who was the one who acted as the nanny for the little boy his whole life. And after much silence, and the price came down and down, she raised her paddle and she said, I'll, I'll take the portrait of the son. Oh, I'll give you what I have for it. And as the auctioneer had the portrait delivered to the back of the room to the, to the nanny, before moving on, as everyone else was anxious to do, he slammed the gavel and he says, the auction is closed. To everyone's surprise, and even anger, he made the announcement that at the request and at the will of the Father, whoever takes the Son gets it all. And that's the story of grace. It's the story of the gospel. If you're the one who sits here this morning and says, you know, I just feel like that outsider. I just feel like the stranger in the room sometimes. When worship, supposed worship is happening and I see guys raising their hands and I see others with their heads bowed and I see maybe people go to the altar and I, and I see the, the worship leaders in the countenance of their face and, and it seems like their heart is on their sleeve. They have this love and affection for the one that they're singing to and I'm singing but I don't feel that. My heart is not in it. it it's because now I know my spirit has been dead. Then here's the good news for you. The Bible says that the wages of your sin is death. But you don't have to pay that debt yourself. The son, the one who sat on the edge of the well, the one who offers the living water, he made amends for us. And he's paid the debt for you. The Bible says that you need only receive the gift that he's offered to that woman and to us through the ages. You need only ask and he would give it to you. Springs of living water flowing from within. You will be reborn. The Bible says you repent of your sins. Turn from, turn from our wicked ways. Turn to grace. Turn to the feet of the one who bled and died for us. And he will give it to us. Salvation. Grace. He who takes the Son gets it all. We sang during prayer time an old hymn. My sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, the hymn writer adds. My sin, not in part but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I, I have to bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That can be true for you this morning. Why don't you stand while I pray?